Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue to make our way through this book. What God the Father has done for us, saving us by His Son Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit has literally given us a new identity. The Christian literally lives in Christ. We are who God says we are. We are forgiven and righteous, hidden with Christ in God as His body. We are then, in a very real sense, what He is. We are not gods. We are not divine by any means, but we truly are in Christ. Truly. Paul sets up the Christian life in these verses as the direct contrast to those who are outside of Christ and how they live and what motivates them in 4.17 to 5.2. One's identity inside or outside of Christ is what will determine one's behavior. Their motivation and evil works, those in the darkness, those unbelieving, is their deceitful desires according to 4.22. Our motivation as Christians in good works is focused outside of ourselves on Christ in 4.24. So to look inward for anything is to look away from Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ is not pure because of the people inside it. It's pure because of who the people inside of it are inside. To be pure, we must behold purity, which can only truly ever be found in Christ. We used to be darkness. This is how Scripture describes us before we were saved. Now, because we live and move and have our being in the Lord, we are light. The call to good works for the Christian, then, isn't mainly a call to become something, but to reflect what we already are in Him. We are called to walk in the world as children of light, shining the gospel of Christ into the darkness in both word and deed. So let's pray And then we'll look at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word, God, and for your truth that remains and for your son who saves completely. And so, God, I ask this morning that you would soften all our hearts, take away our distractions. Let us hear you speaking by your spirit and your word concerning your son and who you have made us in him. And this we pray In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern What is pleasing to the Lord? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So verses 3 and 4 tell us that there are certain ways those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ must not act. But notice before he condemns the acts themselves, 
He tells us first, we must not even talk about them. They must not even be named among us, among you, as is proper among saints. In verse 3, he's talking about sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness in verse 3, and the filthiness, foolish talk and crude joking that surround such things in verse 4. Rather, Paul says, you should talk as saints would talk, meaning their speech would be characterized mainly by thanksgiving. What fills the minds of believers should lead to thanksgiving for the gift of Christ for us in the gospel. What characterizes us, the body of Christ, the children of light, is thankfulness for Christ to the point that it controls how we speak and what we speak about. Paul's main concern here is that in no way, shape, or form would they have anything to do with such things. Any sexual practice or lifestyle that falls outside of God's design for sexuality and marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality, whether it's fornication, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, etc., etc. Now, this doesn't come out of the blue. He's not just picking something to tell them this is an area where you need to be pure. There are also specific reasons for this in Ephesus. Even though the commands remain just as valid and necessary for us today and really increasingly so in our culture. These believers in Ephesus have been saved out of the imperial cult in Ephesus. The worship of the emperor and the empire. And as a part of their worship rituals, members of the imperial cult participated basically every time they gathered in prostitution, in orgies, to the extent that this is what characterized them and made them the kind of people they were. It was literally a part of their religion. Paul is saying, you aren't that anymore. Have nothing to do with such things. Everyone who is that, in verse 5, that that's who they are, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Isn't it beautiful, though, to realize that when God saves us and places us in His Son, as we are hearing here, He no longer defines us by the sins we did or the sins we struggle with now. To come to Jesus is not only to be forgiven and made righteous, but made new and pure and holy, legitimately, completely, in the eyes of Almighty God. When he's saying similar things about similar sins to the church in 1 Corinthians 5 in Corinth, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you are washed. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were cleansed of these things. So this is not saying that those who are tempted by such sins or struggle with them are not saved. It's saying that if this is who you are, you do not have any inheritance that has been promised to the saints back in verse 1, back in the beginning of Ephesians. So maybe someone that is a believer is asking now, okay, so what do I do if I profess, profess Christ, but I struggle with sins of sexual immorality? Beloved, you repent of your sins, first of all. Now, repent of your sins. If verse 5 describes you, then repent. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we do not confess, if we do not repent, this does not remain for us. So we cannot, we're learning here, simultaneously claim the name of Christ and live in unrepentant sin to the extent that it literally defines who we are. 
Grace is full and free to forgive even our ongoing habitual sins or struggle with sin. But God does not want us to remain in them. That misses the point entirely. It is not that such things can't be forgiven. It's that saints repent of their sins rather than coddle them or try to hide them from God. That's darkness. That's what we did when we were in darkness and now we are light. We're exposed. There's no reason for this. And Christ has died for us. We don't need to be afraid to confess our sins. We need to come running to confess them and repent. We will be received with grace and love. It's repentance, not perfection, that marks someone as a true Christian. Repentance. That's what keeps us from being defined as what we were in the darkness. The opposite of vice is not virtue. The opposite of vice is faith. Again, it's, it's, it's not so much a moral code issue necessarily, although it is that, as it is that our faith is in danger. Our faith is in danger when we fall back into pagan, darkened lifestyles. Even association with those things corrupts us over time. Sexual immorality leads to the worship of false gods and vice versa. Are we sinless? No. We're repenters. That's who we are because of God's grace. And he will be with us. So what do we do when we're faced with our own ongoing sins or sins or failures and such things, beloved? We repent. We acknowledge our sin to God and his word and his promise washes over us. We've been given a new identity. We come to him now as children. God defines us now by his grace. And Paul's warning here is so clear because what is named among us, spoken of, characteristically by us, eventually is done by us. We cannot wallow in immorality and let it characterize our thoughts and speech and expect to keep ourselves from the sins that accompany such words. It won't happen. And don't let anyone lie to you. We're reading in verse 6 and tell you, no, you don't need to repent of your sins. Just keep doing it. It's not a big deal. Beloved, God's wrath is coming on those who do not repent of precisely such sins as these. Therefore, in verse 7, his point here is do not become partners with them. Those who continue to live these lifestyles of unrepentant sin. He's talking to the church here because of who God says they are. In verse 8, look back there for a moment. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Notice how Paul grounds these commands here in their identity. That He doesn't tell them to try to become something. He tells them, remember who you are. Therefore, don't live like you are who you used to be. There's no need for that. There's no necessity in that. You used to be darkness, now you are light. Even struggling sinners. Some of them were still committing these sins, which is why he's admonishing them. Look, you need to come out of this. God doesn't define us by what we do, but by whom we belong to. That's what determines how you live your life. We we will struggle with sin. Beloved, all of us, some more than others, even serious, habitual ones, 
but we aren't defined by them when we are in Christ. Jesus washed away our sins, bore the wrath against us for what we had done. Right? You, you see that when, when he talks about the wrath of God coming upon people, those who were in Christ, the wrath of God came upon Christ for their behalf. He's talking about people that are unrepentant in their sin. And there are those that claim the name of Christ that live however they want to live, never repenting, never even thinking that what they're doing is sinning and dishonorable to the name of the Lord God and the Lord Christ. We aren't what we used to be. We're children of God, saved by His Son, sealed by His Spirit. When Jesus saved the life of the woman who had been caught in adultery in John 8 and told her, go and sin no more, it wasn't a threat. It wasn't a condition. He was telling her, I've set you free now. Don't go back to your old life. Don't go back there. You aren't that anymore. The fruit of light in verse 9 is found in all that is good and right and true. Rejoice when we see those things. He is present. Sin isn't just darkness because it's sin. It's darkness because it's lies. And it's deceitful. And it keeps us from seeing the light. All truth is God's truth. All lies are Satan's lies. That's what he's the father of. Anytime you're being lied to, Satan is there. We won't find good or right or true then where Jesus is not. That is how we obey verse 10 in the power of his spirit. That is how we discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Right? Don't, we don't want to not please him. We want to discern what is pleasing to him because we are his. He's our father. We don't treat our parents on earth, hopefully not with such disregard that what they desire for us and hope for us that we don't even take into consideration, how much more so is this the case when God is truly our Father? Those things that are light, those things that point to Christ, find them, discern them. Those things are pleasing to the Lord. Beloved, we have His Spirit. He tells us in Philippians, we've been given the mind of Christ. There's no need, in other words, to live as though we're still in the dark, as though we don't know that we're free. We, we don't know what is good and right and true. Preach to yourselves. We have to preach to ourselves. Again, don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. We're no longer bound to our sin. We need to keep reminding ourselves that Christ has set us free. We are no longer slaves to that old nature. It's still there. The, the carnal flesh is fighting, but we don't have to give in to him. Verse 11 again, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So the church, that's who he's speaking to, doesn't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. It exposes them. When the unfruitful works of darkness are happening around us, in those with whom we are partners, remember verse 7, there's those we don't want to become partners with, but in the church we are partners. When we see the unfruitful works of darkness happening around us, we don't take part in it. We expose them. That is, expose is a light word. We shine the light of Christ on them and pull one another back from death through the truth of God's word in the gospel. When I was in my 
first pastorate uh, in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, there was a gentleman who was a deacon. He was a longtime Sunday school teacher, very well liked, very well respected, that was openly cheating on his wife. Didn't come to church too often. Uh, tried to justify it, tried to hide it. His wife came to me, said this has been going on for about two or three years now. Nobody at the church will do anything about it. Nobody will address him. Would you please go talk to my husband? So I told her, yes, I would. One of the deacons said, listen, I'd like to come with you to talk to this man. So I get in the car. We're driving out to his house. It's about a 20-minute drive from our church. And the deacon says, now listen, we aren't going to talk to him about his sin. That's none of our business. A lot of people think the church is, you know, for getting involved in, in people's lives. But that's, that's, he said, that's not, he said, this is a good man. He said, so we aren't going to address. He's like, so I'm, it's my, was literally my first year, probably six months in to ministry. I didn't know what to do. But when we finally got there to meet with him, he didn't care. And anytime I would try to, of course, remember, I'm a young gun. I'm 27, so I'm trying to, you know, I don't know that my heart was right. I keep trying to do it, but the deacon keeps shutting me down. So nothing happened. Nothing. Just, you know, because, because we like him. He's, an, he's a nice guy. Again, the, the, the word expose here refers to the fact that we are light. So it's, it's not even really commanding here. That you, you look for darkness in people and you go find it and you expose it as we would think of like being exposed on the news. These are identity words. So if you, what will a person do normally when they're living in the darkness? They will separate themselves from the community of faith because they'll be exposed there. It doesn't mean they'll have somebody in their face. It means that the light will expose the darkness. The gospel will expose the darkness. Jesus will expose the darkness. And so I don't want to be around the family of faith. I don't want to be around the community of faith. But in verse 12, it's shameful to even speak of the things that are done in the dark, in secret. Paul wants sexual immorality completely out of our lives because God is a prude. No, God created sex. God created the male and female bodies. It's his idea. And look, I, we probably mentioned it before. He didn't have to make it so it's something we enjoy. It could have just been very mechanical. But God is a God of glory and beauty and depth. Paul says, don't demean what God has made good. Don't have anything to do with this. It will kill us. Sexual immorality is, is, a, is a specific kind of sin. I'm, I'm, I, I, we're not trying to put things on a scale here, but when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians... This is a sin against our own bodies. It, it, it creates webs that never go away. And it doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. Beloved, of course you can be forgiven. I've been forgiven of many such sins. But the scars remain with the things that we do to our bodies. It will kill us. This will kill us. It will put us back in the darkness and we are light. There's no need or requirement for a saint to live in the darkness. It shouldn't be hard to be exposed if the church is being the church. Because the church proclaims the gospel of grace. Sins are forgiven here. Sins are forgiven in the light of Christ. 
If we're preaching that message, it may help create a culture where people that are sinning don't feel the need, first of all, to run and hide. Like, what did I expect? I'm a sinner. I need grace. Church, help me. Pray for me. Deliver me. Right? Notice verses 13 and 14 here, just the first part of 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Anything that becomes visible is light. So light exposes because it's light. Jesus doesn't tell us that the main way, again, to expose sin is to run around pointing at everybody and calling them out. There, there, there may always be a time, if we look at texts like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, that we need to do this. But the way of life of the church is not we're running around pointing each other's darknesses out. The point is that we're being light and light exposes darkness In the church, among the people of God, the communion of saints, then, the main way we expose darkness is by being light. So gossip, for example, is exposed by speech that builds up. It dies in that environment. Sexual immorality is exposed by healthy, vibrant marriages. Lies are exposed by the truth. Stealing is exposed by fidelity and hard work. Slander is exposed by the proclamation of the gospel. And on and on it goes. Be who God says we are, children of light. So I hope we hear in this text that that we see how impossible it is to live a faithful Christian life privately. We need one another. We need to be constantly talking to one another with thanksgiving, with things that build up. Only hearing a sermon a week is not going to give us the fuel that we need to be what we are. You can't really make disciples from the pulpit. You can hear truth. It can be proclaimed. It needs to go out like like buckshot. But you know how buckshot lands unless you're a great shot and are very close. The works of darkness are unfruitful. They're dead And stale and they don't serve people. They use people and they hurt people. And as saints, let us not take any part in them, but expose them mainly by being who God created us to be. There's a, a, I I assume it's true. I heard a story about uh, Billy Graham golfing with some friends. I heard this story from R.C. Sproul. Uh, Two men, one was a believer, one was not. We're going to golf, I think, in Beverly Hills and Billy Graham was in town, and the man that was a friend of Billy Graham invited him to golf with him. So they went out on the golf course, the three of them. And his friend that was not a believer shot a horrible round. And when they, they about on the, the ninth hole or something like that, he, he, he said, man, I'm having such a terrible game. I wish this guy would stop shoving his religion down my throat. And they got to the end of the 18 holes. They sat down in the clubhouse. And his friend said, well, what did he say to you? And he goes, oh, he didn't say anything. I just, I just shot a bad game. I'm going to assume that something in that time, Billy Graham's not a saint. I mean, of course he is. Every believer is. But I mean, you, you know what I'm trying to say. I wonder if it was just the fact that he wasn't, that he was different, right? There was just something different. You don't have to preach people and, and down their throat all the time, right? Sometimes, beloved, light exposes darkness. And light doesn't need to be afraid of darkness. Light has to go where darkness is. But it's stronger than darkness. Therefore, right, 
As saints, let us not take part in those things, but expose them by being mainly who he has created us to be. Therefore, in verse 14, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We don't really know what Paul is quoting here. It's not a biblical quote, but it is something Paul was apparently familiar with. The believers in Ephesus were probably familiar with it too, so maybe it came out of you know, the Greek-Roman philosophy type thing. But I guess not with, with Christ being the main point of it. It was probably just something that the church was saying. But Paul is telling us that the light of Christ, the gift of faith, by which we respond in belief to God's salvation, has exposed us as his own. Jesus is light. We are light. We expose because we're in Christ. So rise from the dead, he's saying to the believers. Stop living in darkness and Christ will shine on you. Don't be what you aren't. And again, when you hear commands, the first thing it's doing is accusing you for not doing what it commands. So when you hear it, repent and pray for his grace to continue to walk in it. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Again, Paul goes back to using that word walk to describe the way in which we live our lives. Now that we are light, we can see, so walk accordingly. You see that? You are light. You know what is wise and what is foolish, so walk accordingly. Don't walk as though you're in the darkness. Don't walk as though we don't know what is evil. And what is good and right and true. Rather, in verse 16, make the best use of the time because the days when it's supposed to be light are evil. The days are dark. Be light. Because that's the state of the world. Right? Make the best use of the time. If the state of the world was damaged, disorganized, in need of a push, that wouldn't be a reason to make sure in everything you make the best use of your time. But the days are evil. They're dark. They're under the authority of Satan, who's roaming around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Since that's the case, since people are dying without Christ, make the best use of the time. What is it? Talk about discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Talking about being wise and not unwise. What is the best use of our time when the whole world is covered in darkness and we are light? So I'm, I'm not a very good Christian. You're light. You're light. Christ, you are in Christ. Where you go, He is going with you. This commandment here encompasses everything, reminds us that Jesus lays claim to every single aspect of our lives, even the way we use our time. Our time should be redeemed for his sake, since we are light in the Lord. This is one of those commands that will crush you. How is sleep the best use of the time? God created us to sleep. So apparently it's part of his will. But what he's telling us is that the time should be redeemed for his sake since we're light in the Lord. So, beloved, let us ask ourselves if we're consistent believers, if we take the word of God seriously, now that we know the truth that sets people free and we are in it and have it, 
what is the best use of our time as the church, as children of light? Ask ourselves that. What is the best? You know that saying, good is the enemy of great or something like that? The Bible calls for the best use of our time. See how God's word lords over us? Oh, that's the question. Is this the best use of the time? If it's not, then we shouldn't spend our time doing it. See how clear the Bible is? Jesus has changed everything. He really is reigning. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. He's Lord over everything. And so certainly, obviously, he lays claim to the time he gives us even to gather. What's the best use of this time? Therefore, discern what is pleasing to him. That's the point of reference. That's the question we ask. Yes, but is, Lord, this pleasing to you? And how would I determine whether this is pleasing to you? This use of my time, this use of my body, right? This use of my words and deeds, etc. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That harkens back to verse 10. And the point is, now that we're light, we know when things are pleasing to the Lord. We know what his will is. The will of God is not a mysterious thing outside of you that you have to find. His will is that we walk as children of light. We know that. That we not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Nor that we name them or can be named among them. We know when things are pleasing to the Lord. Beloved, again, don't try to become light. We are light. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sins, trust in Jesus, and walk. Don't be foolish. Understand His will for us. This is His will for us. He's told us His will for us. Look back at verse 15. That's the very point He's making. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. God has made His will for us very clear in His Word. We are light because he's given us faith to believe that his word is good and right and true. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. So as we know him, we will know the way, beloved. And I wish, listen, I wish sometimes there were more specific things for specific areas of our lives that the Bible would have given us, but it didn't give us that. That's very important for us to remember because we've been promised that he'll supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. So the believer doesn't need a list. The believer needs to remember and confess that he or she is in Christ and therefore will walk accordingly. What we find in Scripture specifically are these proclamations of who we are because of what Christ has done for us. And the life that we live as a result of our identity now. So apparently in those declarations, the first three chapters of Ephesians, for example, the indicatives, this is what is true. This is what God has done. You don't have anything to do with it. In those truths are all that we need, apparently, to live the life he's calling us to live. Because abiding in Christ is abiding in the promise. If that's where we are, that's what will fill our mind and our body and our thinking and our speaking. And as you think back over your life, you think, I don't. Recognize that all the time. Right. So pray, read his word, realize your desperation, how desperate we are at every second for Christ to be with us and over us and in us. 
or more importantly, to remind us that we are, in fact, in him. Jesus is the light of the world. Where he is shining in us, we will be conformed to his image. So trust him. Trust him. In chapters 1 and 2, he not only told us that we were predestined to salvation in some sense, right? But are also predestined for good works. That's also been declared of us by God. So we will walk in them. Don't worry about it. Don't fret over it. Our task is to abide in Christ, which can only be done by his grace. When we abide in him, we will produce the fruit that glorifies God because that's where the spirit is. Stay in Christ. Remember who you are. Believe his word. He is light. He will shine on you. The church in Ephesus was apparently asleep in the light in verse 14. And Paul is saying, you got to wake up. Christ is shining. Let him shine on you. Hear 1 John 1. 5 through 10 in light of Paul here. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. When do I stop walking in darkness? The moment you repent. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, so that's not the goal. It's not to outgrow your need for Christ. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, where Christ is, there's no denial of the need for sin. No denial of the need for repentance or the need, the need to be forgiven of sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Beloved, the commands in verses 3 to 21 here are really one command to stay in Christ. Why? Because there the light is shining. There we know the truth. There we know God's will. There our sins are forgiven and we're being cleansed from our impurities. This is what the light does. Walk in the light, beloved. Walk in Christ. And God's will for us, we try to discern it mainly in Ephesians, is that we be redeemed and become the body of Christ in this world. Since we know that is his will for us. We can walk in confidence that he who began such a work in us will see it through to completion. Since we know this is his will, let us live discerning whether our words and actions shine the light or dim the light in us and for others in the church. That's the context here. In the church, the whole church is involved in the work of ministry. We're equipping one another, beloved. Rejoicing when his spirit produces these works in us. Repenting when we sin. Hoping joyfully in Christ in both. Picking it up lastly in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a rebuttal of the songs you sing when you're drunk. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything. Who is sufficient for such a command? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. So, I hope it doesn't sound disrespectful, but rather than being inebriated with the world, literally here to the point of drunkenness, be inebriated, if you will, with God. In other words, let what shapes your thoughts and minds and actions and controls them be that which points you to God. There's no time for things like drunkenness, debauchery, that dulls our sensitivity to the light. We're a joyful people. We're a thankful people. And if we look at that text and say, okay, so if the chance is there for drunkenness, I shouldn't drink at all. That's fine. That's fine. Just be consistent in that. That's all I would say. If that's your conviction and that's your conscience, beloved, that is fine. I'm not the spirit. Don't let me tell you how to feel about things in your conscience. However, if that's the rule you're going to apply to drunkenness, make sure you apply it to sexual immorality. Right? This, this really isn't a moral code issue. It's an identity issue. And an identity affects morals. What you don't want is morals affecting identity or trying to create identity with morals. We're a joyful people, beloved. We're a thankful people. We believe the gospel. So we're not running around anxious about the state of the world, frantic about our government, angry with each other, especially Christians, in constant anxiety and despair about our ongoing struggle with sin, as though Christ won't be enough for us. No, no, no. We sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, so it needs to be on key, to the Lord with our hearts giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We overflow with Jesus. We live like what God says about us is true. That, get that in your mind. The next, when, when you struggle with temptation, remember who you are. Remember who Christ has made you. Remember what He has done for you. I've been forgiven of this. I've been cleansed of this. I don't need to do this. I don't have to do this. God help me. We live like what God says about Jesus is true. That He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the only way we can give thanks always and for everything. How? Why, beloved, because of the promises, the indicatives, those statements of what is true in chapters 1 through 3. It's not thankfulness as like just a virtue. It's thankfulness because what God says really is true. Like it's okay to be thankful in the midst of a world that is like ours. Because what God has said and what God has done in Christ is real. It's true. And it's for you. All that truth is yours, individually, each one of yours, believer, and ours as the church. So we have the language, the, the tools that we need to help one another. His will for this world is what will be done. So we can rest in everything because everything's under his control. So our, our response to the world doesn't have to be anxiety and fretting and the, the sky is falling. I mean, it is, but God's the one pushing it down. What Jesus has done is so complete and sufficient and beautiful and true that we can actually go so far in this freedom of ours to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't 
so when we decide, okay, should I submit to this person? Should I, um, you know, defer to them? Well, if you look at the person, you'll never believe that you should. Right? So the point of reference is Christ. We don't look at each other to determine how we treat each other. We look at Christ. Because there we'll remember how he's treated us. And this will make it very hard to treat others so poorly that they aren't in Christ. We know what his purpose is for us. We know here what his will is for us. We no longer, when you read a text like verse 21, that means we no longer have any need whatsoever to justify ourselves, to promote ourselves, to fight for ourselves. We don't have to win. We're all free from winning. That, that makes us use people and hurt people and stay angry with people. And we, we, we don't have to get our way. None of us, including me, we, we don't. We're free to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because we will lose nothing. We can lose nothing of what he has given to us or who he is for us. So, beloved, Jesus is our point of reference. The true source of light itself. In him there is no darkness at all. None. All these commands have Christ at the focus or as the focus of our hearts when we read them. We live as we've been called to live. Not because we're trying to earn salvation but because, or, or because we need to look good and all put together for other people. No, that's not what the light is. Not because God needs our good works. He does not. He's received from Christ the righteousness that he's credited to us. We're called to live according to the truth of the gospel out of reverence for Christ. And not just because it's right, but because everything Jesus says is true. Where would we not want to take him? We really are free. He holds nothing over our heads. We obey and submit to him for this reason. For this reason. Because it's finished. Beloved, we are children of the light of Jesus in that regard. As the light of the world. We are called to walk in the world as children of light. Shining the gospel of Christ into the darkness all around and within us. In word and in deed. Because Jesus is the truth. And he's the light of the world. Because in him sins are forgiven. In him we're washed clean. In him guilt is removed. Love and mercy reign in our lives. As we extend this, these gifts to others in the power of his Holy Spirit. All that is needed for us to be God's own dear child has been accomplished. All that is needed for us to walk as what he has made us in this world has been given to us in Christ through his word. So let us look to Christ in reverence, beloved. Let that be the default position of each one of our lives. Let Jesus be our true north. We don't have the strength or the will to obey these things in our flesh. So don't try But by his spirit that is in us, we are given the light we need to produce the works he has called us to. So the key is to live in reverence for Christ in order to walk in the light. And to remember this morning as you stand that we need grace and the spirit. So let us ask for them in order to shine.